The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. This morning we're looking at Matthew chapter 12, resuming our study in Matthew. We're looking at verses 22 through 29. The scripture reading went on a little beyond that because I'm going to allude to some of those. But we're really going to zero in on Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 through 29. Now there are a few types of stories that, at least for me, are as appealing or exciting as heroic rescue stories. I mean, you think about fairy tales in which the, the prince... Uh, endowed sometimes only with courage and with uh, cleverness is able to rescue the damsel in distress. I mean, how many fairy tales are there like that? But in real life also there have been heroic tales and it is encouraging for us to read them, to look at the valor, the heroism, the willingness to sacrifice, even to lay down lives so that hostages may be rescued. Think about, for example, the experience of the Navy SEALs in 1991 as a civil war was raging in Somalia and the warlords had surrounded our embassy in Mogadishu and there were frantic calls from the American ambassador there to get them out. There were a number of civilians, there were families, there were other diplomats from foreign countries and they sent the SEALs in under cover of darkness. And when they arrived, it was not a moment too soon because already there were, there were rebels and insurrectionists climbing the walls of the, of the embassy that very night, armed to the teeth. And so these men went in and, and basically held that perimeter until helicopters could come in and rescue 281 hostages. And not a single soldier and not a single hostage lost his life that night. Incredible valor and heroism. And done by the SEALs, you never hear about it. They don't want you to know about it. But this is the way that they act. A heroic rescue. Some military rescues are done just when the battle lines advance far enough to overtake POW camps or concentration camps. That happened recently in the uh, Iraqi war as, as we just advanced so quickly that we were able to uh, rescue some POWs. And a number of you, I'm sure, saw direct answers to prayer as some of you were praying for the POWs that they would be set free. And so they were. The same thing definitely happened in World War II as the battle lines advanced beyond the place where the concentration camps were and the horrors at last of Nazi concentration camps were exposed to the world as these emaciated victims were hugging and kissing their liberators, freed at last from tyranny. Some rescues involve not a military uh, conquest but just the heroism perhaps of running into a burning building to rescue heroically some that are surrounded by flames and have no other way to escape. You remember what happened at 911 when uh, policemen and firemen were willing to rush into a, an inferno and there'd be no other way to describe what was happening at the World Trade Center. Incredible courage and valor. So the annals of history are filled with heroic rescues. But there is no greater rescue in all of history than the one that was done for your soul by Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian this morning. That Jesus Christ went against great opposition. The kingdom of the devil took him on in all of his strength, against his will, plundered you, and brought you over into the kingdom of light. Isn't that wonderful? You were rescued. You were rescued from a kingdom of darkness. And the story that we're going to look at today, the account of the miracle that Jesus uh, did shows very, very clearly, I think for the first time in Matthew's gospel, the two kingdoms that are at war 
with each other. They're opposite kingdoms and opposites attack one another. If you look at verse 26, for example, in our text, Matthew 12, 26, Jesus speaks of Satan and says, If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself, how then can his kingdom stand? So Jesus ascribed to Satan a kingdom of sorts, a kingdom. But then look at verse 28. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So in verse 26, Satan's kingdom. In verse 28, God's kingdom. And the two are opposites, and they attack one another. The beautiful news of the gospel is that Christ's kingdom is far stronger than Satan's kingdom. And that he is able, with great authority and power, to plunder Satan any time he chooses. And that's what we're talking about today. Jesus says in verse 29, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. And that's what's been going on now for 2,000 years. Now, last time we talked about Matthew's gospel, we talked about the incredible gentleness of Christ, didn't we? Remember we said that he is of a kind that a bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out until he leads justice to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Well, that is true that Christ advances his kingdom through an irresistible gentleness with us. That's how he deals with us at the human level. But in the spiritual realm, there is warfare. There is immense warfare, violent and vicious And as a matter of fact, if we had our eyes opened and could see even what was going on now in the spiritual realm, even around this room, I think we would be cowed into terror. It would be difficult to even move. And so God shields us as sheep we are, as little children that we are, so that only occasionally can we feel the, the impact of that spiritual battle. But he sees it all the time. There is a warfare going on in the heavenly realms. And this text that we're looking at today kind of opens it up for us so that we can look at it. Now, the context here is of a powerful sign that Jesus does, a miracle. If you look at uh, verse 22, it says, They brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. So this is an opportunity for Satan's powerful kingdom to be exposed, to be brought to light. Indeed, whenever Jesus did these kind of exorcisms or driving out a demon with a word... Satan's evil kingdom is exposed to some degree. We can see in the five-sense world some evidence of these spiritual beings called demons. Now, what are demons? Demons are powerful spiritual beings, just as there are angels. There are also demons that rebelled, that joined Satan in his rebellion. And they fell, and they're in opposition to God, and they together comprise Satan's kingdom. And they are around us all the time, and they really are that with which we have to do. As we seek to advance the kingdom. In Ephesians 6.12 it says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So that is Satan and his kingdom. Or we could say the devil and his angels, as Jesus says in uh, the sheep and the goats. He says, Depart from me, you who are cursed. This time speaking to to people who have joined league with Satan in his kingdom. He says to them, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So his angels are demons. 
and they joined him in his rebellion. They are Satan's henchmen. And they're in some kind of a structure and order, aren't they? Satan's kingdom is orderly. Powers and principalities and hierarchies of structure and order. All right, those, that's what demons are. What is demon possession? What was going on with this individual? Well, we've already covered this to some degree, but a review is good. Uh, a demon can possess a human being in this sense to indwell them and to kind of take over their personality to a point where they really don't have any choice in the matter whatsoever. They so thoroughly dominate that individual that they become uh, somewhat of an incarnation of evil. Jesus has already driven out many demons in Matthew chapter 4 and then again in Matthew 8. Many demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus and in every case he drove out the spirit uh, with a word. And so Jesus has the power to do this. Now, as we look at these demons, uh, demons are powerful beings. I am troubled sometimes by our understanding, our really lack of it, of the spiritual realm. The fact of the matter is that demons are fallen angels, and your view of angels, therefore, might color your, your view of demons. Angels are immensely powerful beings. You remember when we studied in the book of Daniel... Uh, a while ago. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel is by the river, the great river of the Tigris. And he, and he looks up and, he, and it says, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like a multitude. Well, that's an immensely powerful angel. And Daniel, it says, I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. Now, this is a good angel. And, and Daniel is prostrate before it, just powerless even to speak. Well, the angel explains to Daniel that he had been dispatched from heaven as an answer to Daniel's prayer. But it had taken him 21 days to get there. Why so? Because there was battle in the heavenly realms. There was warfare in the invisible heavenly realms. And it says, the prince of Persia opposed me. Now think, if this angel could be opposed by one of these demonic figures, how powerful must that demon have been? And he couldn't get past him until the archangel Michael came and assisted him. And he said, there's no one else that helps me, only Michael who came to assist. Why? Because, I guess the implication is all the other angels were engaged in warfare of their own. They couldn't be removed from the line, and so he had to battle it out for 21 days in the heavenly realms. Do you see what I mean about the invisible world around us and all the warfare that's going on? To some degree, aren't you glad you don't see it? How would you even carry on your lives? How would you sit down to dinner? If you saw what was going on in your kitchen, how difficult that would be. And so God is gracious to us and we cannot see what's going on. But we must believe in scripture that this is happening. Luther put it very well when he said, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabaoth his name. The Lord Almighty. From age to age, 
the same. And he must win the battle. Isn't that awesome? Spiritual battle in the heavenly realms. Luther was well aware of it. Well aware of it. Now, are there different types and effects of demon possession? Yes. We've already seen how Jesus took on the demoniac of the Gadarenes. Remember, the demon inside named himself Legion, for there were many. So many demons can inhabit one person. And Jesus drove out that demon with the single word, go, and out he went. Well, that demon-possessed man was so violent that he was ripping to shreds chains of iron. Couldn't live among people. Absolutely out of his mind, berserk, and living out in the tombs. And hurting himself, dashing himself against the rocks. That was him. This demon-possessed man is of a different order. Rather kind of meek and mild. It says, then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. They just kind of led him, as you would, a blind man. He seems kind of docile and quiet. And so there's different levels also, it seems, of these demons and of demon possession. And Jesus heals the man completely. When Jesus heals you, you're healed. I mean, you're healed completely. And so he drove out the demon and healed him so that he could both talk and see. An incredible display of power. Realize before Jesus came to do miracles, there's no record anywhere of anyone ever giving sight to blind people. Never had been done. It seemed that this miracle was reserved for Christ alone, who is the light of the world. And so it's an astonishing miracle. And so as a result, all of the crowd is astonished. Look what it says in the text. All the people were astonished. The, the, the Greek word is very strong here. They're almost outside of themselves. And you'd think, you know, it doesn't seem that this is all that great a miracle compared to the others. Well, I don't know. All I know is that they were astonished. They were, they were almost bes- beside themselves with astonishment. They were stunned almost into silence. You get the feeling of being amazed. There's a story of Martin Lloyd-Jones when he was preaching a revival in Wales. And the Spirit of God was so powerfully present during that time just there in a mighty way, that when he finished, no one moved in the congregation for about half an hour. They just sat there stunned. Just a sermon. (laughs) Oh, but it wasn't. It was an event in which they were interacting with the living God. And I think the Spirit was just so powerfully present at this moment that everyone was in awe. And they began to toy with a very dangerous question. They ask it in the negative in the Greek. They ask, this couldn't be the son of David, could it? The NAS has it right in the translation. But they're willing at least to ask the question. Now, later on in John's gospel, in John chapter 9, in the story of Jesus healing the man who was born blind, that kind of question can get you thrown out of the synagogue. By this point, they had, I think, their their, uh, defense arranged. And if you even asked the question or came to the conclusion that Jesus was the son of David, he was the Messiah, you would be evicted from the synagogue. But they're toying with the question. And when the Pharisees hear this, they begin to lash out. They make an accusation in verse 24. It says, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now, you may not realize, but they just, in effect, chewed off their own leg to save themselves, so they thought, to get out of the trap that Jesus' miracles had put them in. They were stuck. John Piper uses that analogy. He talks about the Samaritan woman 
at the well. And Jesus brings her to a realization of her sinfulness by pointing out her adultery. And uh, he says, you're right in saying I have no husband for the man you now have is not your husband and you've had seven others. So it's a good saying, a well said that you have no husband. And she says, I perceive that you are a prophet. And while we're talking about my adultery, let's talk about the proper place of worship. That's called changing the subject. It's known as a red herring. And so Piper says a trapped animal put in a trap will chew off its own leg to escape. And so she mangles the flow of conversation so that she can change the subject. I think that's exactly what the Pharisees are doing here. They're trapped. They're put in a box. They don't know what to do with Jesus. They hate him, but they can't deny what he's doing. And so they don't know how to deal with it. And so they come up with this rather shocking conclusion. Now realize what I just said. I think the Spirit of God was so powerfully present there that the people were astonished and amazed and didn't know what to say. There was a sense of amazement there. And in the midst of that, they say it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that he drives out demons. It's astonishing. They had no good answer. Now, who is Beelzebub? You probably don't use that word in everyday language. And if you did, the people you were talking to probably wouldn't know what you meant. But the word Beelzebub is related to the word Baals. You can kind of see it in the first four letters. It's a Baal, a Lord, I think is the way that you would speak, of the flies or perhaps of dung. It's um, a Jewish insult for a demon god. It's really the name of Satan. It's the name of Satan. And so they accuse Jesus of being a con artist working undercover for Satan's kingdom. He's an undercover operative for Satan's kingdom. And he's doing his miracles by Satan's power. And the whole thing's a big trick. The whole thing a big ruse. Now, in one sense, it is possible. It is plausible. Because evil people can do miracles. They do in the Bible sometimes. For example, Janus and Jambres, these magicians, opposed Moses and were able to mimic some of his miracles at the time of the Exodus. And then in Deuteronomy 13, Moses warns the Jewish people, says, if a prophet or one who foretells by dreams comes among you, and if he performs some kind of great sign or wonder, but then says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, then do not listen to him. God is testing you to see whether you'll be faithful. So it is possible that a demonic kind of figure could do a miracle. And certainly at the end of the world, you who are God's children, be warned. I don't know if we're in the final generation, but be warned. And if you're not, then tell your children. Because the Antichrist will be able to do great signs and wonders, false miracles, to deceive even the elect, if that were possible, it says. So be be warned, be ready. That just because someone can do miracles doesn't mean that they're from God. So in one sense, it's true. This is therefore a very deadly, serious accusation, isn't it? Very, very serious to accuse Jesus of doing miracles by Beelzebub. Now, what was their logic? How were they thinking? Let's see if we can try to figure out uh, where they're coming from to try to understand. This is my take on it. Their major premise in life was that they personally were righteous, right with God, made the rules so that others could be right with God, and therefore anyone who who disagreed with them was by definition wicked. That's their major premise. They are righteous, and everyone who opposes them is wicked. Okay? A fact is that Jesus constantly broke their regulations on the Sabbath and other things. 
What was their conclusion then? Jesus was wicked. They've already figured that out. They start with their own righteousness and they reason based on that that Jesus must be wicked. Okay, the second phase of their reasoning. Anything done supernaturally can only come from one of two sources. It can only come from God or the devil. In this they are right. So there must be only one of two possible explanations for a miracle. It's either from God or from the devil. But we've already proven that Jesus is evil and wicked, right? So therefore, his miraculous power must come from the devil. Do you follow their logic? Every single point was right except their original premise. Do you see that? What was their original premise? That they were righteous in need of no savior and that everyone who opposed them was wicked. That was their flaw. They started with their own self-righteousness. And from there, they ended up lost. They ended up lost. How does Jesus defend himself? Well, he does so using logic. He does so using experience. And he does so with a statement of power. First, logic. Verse 25 and 26. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? Now note right from the beginning in verse 25, Matthew doesn't miss an opportunity to say, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, He wants you to know as the reader that Jesus is divine. He has supernatural power to read minds. This is established again and again in the Gospels. He's reading your mind right now. What are you thinking about? Are you thinking about the word of God? Jesus can read your mind. He can read your thoughts. He knows everything. And so he has the power to read minds. And so he frequently will engage in a debate with somebody's thoughts. I know what you're thinking. Let's go ahead and deal with that question that you're bringing up in your mind. And so he establishes this deity of Christ. Now, his logic is a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. I must tell you that I had to work on this for a while to understand it. I really did. Because almost the simple way of looking at this is that anybody who drives out a a demon, therefore, must be from God. And it's really hard to to justify that because in Matthew 7, you know, it seems that people drive out demons and end up in hell. And the seven sons of Sceva do it and and they're none of gods. And so how how can it be? And so it's really kind of hard to figure this out. But let's, let's let's try to understand what he's saying. It really has to do with common way of thinking. A civil war destroys the country. Do you see what I'm saying? If you get a country divided and in factions and they are ripping themselves to shreds, when it's done, there may be nothing left of the kingdom. I think that's his, his argument. Many times in Europe, uh, Europe has been rent to shreds by what we call wars of succession. A king would die with two equally qualified sons. That's a big problem if you don't have rules and regulations. The British have very, a very clear uh, delineated lines of succession, who's next and how it all works, so that they can avoid these kinds of wars of succession. Now, the American Civil War is still the bloodiest war that we ever fought, as we really tried to rip ourselves to shreds over this issue of slavery. And so Abraham Lincoln, when he accepted the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate in June of 1858, actually quotes this verse. 
And he says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. The point is that this kind of a major civil war is a disaster for the kingdom. So Christ's point is not that Satan is not capable of a ruse or a trick or a con. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is you're missing the scope and scale of the damage that I'm doing to Satan's kingdom. I am ravaging it from one end of the country to the other. Everywhere Jesus went, he was driving out demons. Everywhere Jesus went, he was healing people. And even more significantly, everywhere he went, people were repenting from sin, trusting in him, and walking over into repentance and righteousness. Like Zacchaeus, that tax collector, remember him? And he'd been plundering everybody. When Jesus comes from then on, he's different. He's been plucked from Satan's wicked kingdom, and now he's righteous. Jesus is doing serious damage. Imagine, to try to understand Jesus' way of thinking, that we had during the Cold War a CIA operative in Moscow, let's say. And let's say he was suspected of being precisely that. And he's brought in. And they want him to prove his loyalty to communism. They might ask him to do something that only somebody who hated the United States would do. Now realize that there's, at a low level, a willingness on the part of the spy to keep up the ruse. So he might be willing to do some minor damage against the United States. But uh, if they said, I want you to uh, launch this missile that will sink this aircraft carrier, he won't do it. Because the damage to the country is far greater than any benefit of his spying could ever do. And so he'd be exposed at that moment. Jesus said, it's the scope of the destruction I'm doing to the kingdom that makes your argument false. If Satan is divided against Satan like this, his kingdom is destroyed. Totally. Jesus, it says in 1 John 3, 8, uh, came, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And that's what he was doing. He was laying waste the devil's kingdom. Second argument, Jesus uses experience. Verse 27, by whom do your sons drive out demons? He said, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. Now, it's kind of hard to understand. I don't really know if they're disciples. I think sons means disciples. Uh, disciples were actually driving out demons. But think of it this way. Let's say, Mr. Pharisee, that you had a disciple who actually did drive out a demon. What would you say? Oh, what a glorious teacher I am. And look at my disciple. Look what he can do. I'm so proud of him. Like father, like son. It's evidence and proof that God is with him, Right? Jesus is saying it's only fair then if you ascribe to your own disciples proof that God is with you through the driving out of demons. Why do you deny it when I just destroy Satan's kingdom? Do you not see what you're doing? And so he uses experience with them. And then thirdly, he uses power. Verse 28. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is really a, a, a word of warning. The kingdom of God has come upon you. You have to deal with the kingdom of God. You have to deal with me as the king of the kingdom of heaven. It's in effect a warning. Jesus says, I drive out demons by the spirit of God. From the beginning of his miraculous ministry, Jesus stood in front of his uh, fellow townspeople in Nazareth. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to give sight to the blind and to 
uh, and to give walking ability to the lame, all of that by the power of the Spirit of God. He says, that's happening now. I am here, and by the power of the Spirit of God, I'm driving out demons. And so, therefore, the kingdom of God is here. It is upon you now. Now, notice, this is the first time that we've had a clear indication, clear statement from Jesus that the kingdom of God is here now. And that was 2,000 years ago. So the kingdom of God is here now, today, and yet it's not here. Because we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom what? Come. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom is an already not yet kind of thing. It's already here, but it's not yet here. So therefore it's started and it's advancing, it's growing. When we get to the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13, God willing, we'll see the growth of the kingdom explained. So the kingdom has come, it is here now, and it is growing. It is getting established. Jesus says, I advance my kingdom through violence in the heavenly realms. Through violence, I advance my kingdom. I bind the strong man and I plunder his kingdom. Look at verse 29. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. Yesterday I was reading in the newspaper a letter to the editor in the uh, Durham paper, and I'm always interested to read the viewpoints of my neighbors on various topics. But there continues to be a debate about the propriety of the United States having engaged in war in Iraq and back and forth, and people are still saying, even in the Democratic debate last night in South Carolina, that uh, some of the candidates feel that we should have brought Saddam to the negotiating table, should have worked with him, talked to him, tried to negotiate a settlement, this kind of thing. Well, I don't really know whether that would have worked or not. I have my opinions, but this is not the place for that. I will say this, that God will never bring Satan to the negotiating table. Ever. He has nothing to negotiate. He's going to dominate his kingdom. He's going to keep advancing that kingdom until he has conquered it and destroyed it and there's nothing left. Nothing. There's no negotiation possible with the devil. None. And so all I'm going to do with the devil, I'm not going to talk about the possessions. Maybe we can split some of them. He can have some and I'll have some. Or maybe he can have them for a while and then I'll take them. Uh, It's not going to be like that. I'm going to plunder him. I'm going to bind him and I'm going to plunder him. And he can't stop me. That's what he's saying. It's a matter of warfare. And I'm not going to negotiate with the devil. The kingdom of heaven is advancing forcefully. And it's continuing to move. The kingdom of Satan is fighting back violently. It does not want to give up even a single soul to Christ. Not one. And yet we keep getting saved. More and more of us around the world. How many will be saved today? Wouldn't that be wonderful to know how many will come to faith in Christ today as the gospel is preached? And the devil can't stop it. The kingdom of heaven is advancing forcefully and Satan is fighting back violently. He he really believes this world is his. He really does. You remember when Jesus was tempted and and, uh, the devil took him to a, a high mountain and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said, all this is mine. <laughs> For a while. All this is mine. For it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. So then, if you will just bow down and worship me, I'll give it to you. And Jesus said, away from me. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But the devil has a sense of ownership. And so in 2 Corinthians 4.4, he is called God of this world. He kind of owns it. And so that's the house, the world. And Jesus comes and takes on the strong man, the devil. And he overpowers him. He binds him up. And he plunders him. 
good example of this is in Luke 13, 16. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. On the Sabbath, do you notice how many times Jesus healed on the Sabbath? He's just tweaking the Pharisees' initial presupposition again and again. We're self-righteous. You should not do such and such on the Sabbath. Well, here I am again, doing it on the Sabbath. What are you going to do? Might I urge you to challenge your presupposition? Maybe you're not righteous. Maybe your laws are not perfect. Maybe they're just laws made by men. Maybe you need to repent and come to faith in Christ. But anyway, he heals on the Sabbath, and it's a woman who's hunched over and kind of bound by a, uh, some kind of a paralysis or something. And Jesus ascribes it directly to Satan. And Jesus says, Should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? And so he says, Woman, you're loosed. You're set free from Satan and his power. Oh, the power of Christ. To set us free, not just physically, but spiritually. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. That's Jesus Christ. His kingdom advances powerfully. And Satan is therefore plundered. He's plundered. Luke 11, the parallel passage here says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils. So there we were, huddled, wicked, sinful, just like the devil, rebellious against God, dead in our transgressions and sins, unable to change the situation. And suddenly light breaks in, Christ comes, he rescues, he transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and all glory to him. And there was not one thing the devil could do to stop it. That's our salvation, rescued from the devil. And Satan, or Christ has been doing this for 2,000 years. He didn't just want to win one victory, like he won the major victory at the cross, but he wants to kind of enjoy the unfolding of the victory. For 2,000 years he's been enjoying it, as the gospel has marvelously spread from shore to shore, every tribe and language and people and nation, people coming to faith, and all the marvelous stories as the thing unfolds, and all of it to his glory. It's marvelous. This defeat of Satan that's been going on for 2,000 years. And so we have displayed here for us an act of power, of raw authority of Jesus Christ. An act of violence in the heavenly realms. What application can we take from this message, from this text? First, just stand in awe and worship Christ for his power. Just worship him. I mean, just take this text and say, thank you, Lord. I praise you for your awesome power. Just worship him for his power. There's no disease that he cannot cure. There's no demon too powerful for him to drive out with a word. There's no effort on his part. There's no mind that he cannot read. And there is no false doctrine that he cannot refute. And there's no combination of demonic powers that can stop him from doing what he wants to do. That's the power of Christ. Secondly, understand how Christ's kingdom is advanced by aggressive conquest. Not in the physical realm, but in the spiritual. Nothing good in this world is given to us by the devil. Everything must be taken by force. You understand that? The devil doesn't concede anything. And so, therefore... We have to understand the nature of spiritual warfare that must go on for the kingdom of heaven to advance. He's not going to give up an inch of territory. No one can be saved. No one. Unless the devil is bound and restricted from what he's been doing to that individual. 
and uh, stopped from doing that. So he cannot blind that person's mind anymore. He can't be saved unless that work is done. Now, tonight, you're going to have an opportunity to listen to the testimonies of the missionaries that we sent out to Haiti. If ever there was a display of the kingdom of darkness, it's Haiti. With the voodoo and the magic and the demonic being openly worshipped in some places, the poverty, the disease, and to see a little glimpse of what I'm talking about. Come tonight of how the gospel can bring light into an incredibly dark place. The advance of the kingdom. Come tonight and hear the testimonies. Thirdly, I want you to see the incredibly destructive power of self-righteousness. Jesus calls this kind, this display of self-righteousness... Acted out through unbelief, the unforgivable sin. We're going to talk about that, God willing, next time. But it's incredible. Self-righteousness will bring you to hell. And the Pharisees thought that they were righteous. Beware that the same thing doesn't happen to you. If you're sitting in the pew right now listening to me, and I ask you, on what basis do you think you're going to go to heaven? And if your answer has anything to do with your good deeds and the good person you are, then you're in danger of falling into the same pit that the Pharisees displayed. Self-righteousness, trusting in your own righteousness. Don't do it. Trust in the righteousness that Christ alone can give through the cross. Trust in Him. Fourthly, if you have trusted in Him, you are a Christian, rejoice and give thanks for your salvation. Do it today. I think that's what the Sundays are for. Two weeks ago, we celebrated Easter. Let's celebrate it again. I know you don't have the candy and the, the hats and the dress and, and all that. But celebrate Easter. Celebrate the resurrection victory. Celebrate the fact that you were rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought over into the kingdom of Christ. And then fifth, get busy advancing the kingdom. Get busy advancing the kingdom through force and power in the spiritual realms. First through prayer. Paul says after talking about spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms and spiritual armor that we should wear and all that, he says with this in mind... Be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. We don't pray enough, brothers and sisters. We don't. And I think, therefore, we don't see all the fruit that we should. We are not the witnesses we should. We're not seeing as many people baptized as we should. It's not going to come easily. It's going to come through trusting prayer, understanding these kinds of things. Warfare prayer, you could call it. Now, I want you to understand, I'm not advocating all the things in the spiritual warfare movement. There are some real problems there. But I do believe that we underestimate the demonic element that surrounds us. And then, warfare witnessing. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not that individual. But realize that that God of this world has blinded that person. And we need to pray and trust against that force. Christ is sufficient and powerful. And he will succeed. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.